Let me pray for our time this evening, and then we'll dive into 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for another Wednesday night where we can come together and study your word. We thank you, Lord, for uh, your grace, which was evident in the lives of Paul and Timothy and so many other men and women throughout church history who have stewarded your gospel and shared it with those around them. Lord, as we look at your grace and the lives of unworthy people, may we too be reminded how unworthy we are and yet how gracious you are to us. Lord, may we draw strength from the way you have acted in people's lives before us. May we be equipped with the blueprints and the patterns of those who've run the race before us. And may we abound with the same overflowing effusive praise for you, the God of all grace, the way Paul does in this chapter. Lord, help us to marvel at the gospel. Help us to be sobered by what it means to make shipwreck of one's faith. And help us to be encouraged to persevere and to faithfully discharge the ministry that you've entrusted to each one of us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 20. 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 20. We are biting off a larger portion of Scripture than we have the last few weeks. But if we're going to finish first and prayerfully 2 Timothy by the end of April, we're going to have to take uh, larger chunks as we go along. Hopefully we do every verse justice as we move through it. 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 20. The title of tonight's sermon is God's Grace for Unworthy Soldiers. God's Grace for Unworthy Soldiers. And I hope you're encouraged by the end of tonight. There is no other kind of soldier in the Lord's army. We're all unworthy. None of us earn our commission. Our commission to labor for the Lord, whether you are in full-time vocational ministry, whether you are CEO or CFO or leader of an organization, whether you are in maintenance work, whether you are stay-at-home mom, whether you're in medical work or education, whatever you do, whatever you do, it's God's grace that is active in your life and that has given you a ministry to fulfill, a charge to carry out. I'll read the text, 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 20. We'll just briefly remind ourselves of the background of 1 Timothy, and then we'll dive into our message for tonight. Here's the text. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. 
to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So many of you may know me, and you might know that my favorite movie trilogy, well, I've got two. One is Star Wars, and the other is Lord of the Rings. Star Wars, and not necessarily Lord of the Rings, although it could apply to Lord of the Rings, but actually more poignantly, the prelude to Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, Star Wars and The Hobbit kind of begin with similar openings. You have an unassuming guy, nobody's first choice for the protagonist, with his own weaknesses, you know, Luke Skywalker and Bilbo Baggins. Luke Skywalker is whiny. He's, I mean, just watch Star Wars. Listen to how much he whines in the first act of the movie. You know, you know he's whiny. He's, no, he's a complaining teenager who's stuck on a farm and throwing fits about it. And then Bilbo, who's soft and fat and likes his comfort. They're both called to go on an adventure. They're both called to go on what people have called the hero's journey. And both of them, Luke and Bilbo, along the way, find the ability to face the task set before them inside themselves. They had something in them all along that they just needed to tap into in order to do what was set before them. For Luke, it was accessing the force, not trusting in technology or uh, advice from his battle commanders, but he had to trust the force to blow up the Death Star. And for Bilbo, he had to find his courage, his courage that he had in him all along, that was drawn out from him in his adventures with the dwarves and with Gandalf. Those are fun stories. We like watching them or reading them, especially if you're like me. If you're not like me and you're saying, what is this guy talking about? It's okay. It's nerdy stuff. But the gospel is similar and yet completely different. We don't have in us, unlike Luke or Bilbo or Frodo or whomever, we don't have in us what is necessary to complete the task that we're called to. We're in desperate need for something outside of us. We're called to a task if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you're called to a task. You're called to a ministry. But you don't have in you enough to do that ministry. And the minute we start thinking we do, the minute we start thinking that we can grit our teeth and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and, man, if I could just muster myself through another day of the Christian life, that's the minute we start setting ourselves up for a failure. We are daily in need of God's grace. Paul's testimony here in these nine verses, from verse 12 to verse 20, is that God's grace is everything to him. Remember, we're in a war. We're in a spiritual battle. Our theme verse is in this passage for tonight, verse 18. Remember this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may fight the good fight, wage the good warfare. We're in a battle. That hasn't changed. But we don't have in us the courage all along. Like so many stories from literature or science fiction or entertainment. We need something outside of us to equip us and enable us to keep us going, to help us persevere. This whole section is a testimony in both Paul's life 
and a charge to Timothy centered around the grace of God. Just a brief reminder of our background of 1 Timothy, in case you are new with us or in case you've forgotten, the author of this book is the Apostle Paul. He wrote this approximately 62 to 64 AD, following his first Roman imprisonment, which is recorded at the end of the book of Acts. He writes it to Timothy, his trusted lieutenant, his true child in the faith. Paul had been a spiritual mentor and father figure to Timothy. He loved Timothy as a man loves his son. And now he sent Timothy to go to Ephesus. There was a solid church in Ephesus, a historical church in Ephesus, a church that had received truth and training for a long period of time. And yet it had problems. Paul had warned in Acts 20 that in the Ephesian church, there would arise, even from among the leadership, savage wolves not sparing the flock. That had come true. There were certain people, and it's very possible that we read some of their names in verse 20 of chapter 1, men like Hymenaeus and Alexander, who had risen up within the body and had started teaching false things about Jesus, false things about the Christian life. By their words and by their conduct, they had denied the gospel and they were creating a mess in the Ephesian church. So Paul sends Timothy, verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in emphasis so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Paul sends Timothy, Timothy, go and address these issues in the church. The theme of this, as we've already said, This command, I trust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies made concerning about you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith in a good conscience. And as we said the last few weeks, this book is sometimes called a pastoral epistle because there's a lot of wisdom in this book, as well as 2 Timothy and Titus for pastors and church leaders, but it's not for pastors and church leaders exclusively. This book is applicable to anybody in the Christian life, anybody running the Christian race. You know, we see in Ephesians 6 that every single one of us, not just pastors, but every single one of us is in a spiritual battle. If you're a believer, you've been enlisted. If you're a Christian, you're in the war. And this book teaches us how to fight. How to fight. And specifically, in these verses, verses 12 through 20, we're shown that the grace of God enables us for the fight. The grace of God helps us in the fight. The grace of God calls us to the fight. The grace of God teaches us how to fight. So let's see here in this section, four transformative impacts the grace of God has on unworthy soldiers. Four transformative impacts the grace of God has on unworthy soldiers. The grace of God is God's unmerited favor. It's God's smile upon you. The smile, not of somebody just saying, oh, good for you, but actually a warm, loving, fatherly smile. It's his favor, unmerited and unearned, continually directed towards you. That's the grace of God. It comes to us because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Grace, by definition, is not a gift. It is simply God's kindness to the believer. His sustaining equipping to the believer. His love, his affection, his blessing on the believer. The grace of God was everything to Paul. It was the heart of his ministry. He says in Acts 20 verse 24, I consider my life not anything to myself, but only that I may testify solemnly to the gospel of God's grace. 
We see here in this section that first, God's grace enlists unworthy soldiers to serve. You know, the old hymn says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved." Grace is what starts us off at the beginning of the process of our conversion. When we are shown just how desperately wicked we are, and then we are shown just how amazingly kind God is. Grace calls us into the fight. It enlists us. God's grace enlists unworthy soldiers to serve. Verse 12, Paul says, I thank him, him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with a faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Overwhelmed by God's grace, Paul looks back on his life and he singles out two significant moments in his life. You might be tempted to think that he's referring to the exact same instance, but there's two points in his life that he's referring to in these verses. And the first point that he refers to in the text is actually the later one chronologically. He's referring to both his conversion and also his called a formal apostolic ministry. And you might not know this, but there was a period of about 15 years that separated those two instances. He was called by God out of darkness into light around AD 32. And then he served faithfully in a variety of local churches until around AD 47, 15 years before he was called into apostolic ministry. Paul was just like you and me, serving in local churches. And we're going to get to the point where he was called into formal apostolic ministry. But just so you know, at the outset, all of this is on his mind. And he sees a common thread in all of this. God's grace. God's grace. Now, let's look at our context a little bit. To understand verse 12, let's look briefly at verses 9 through 11. Remember what we looked at last week? Paul concluded this section in verses 9 through 11, talking about the purpose of the law. Because why was he talking about the purpose of the law? Because these false teachers like Alexander and Hymenaeus were twisting the law. They were using the Old Testament to come up with crazy doctrines. They were devoting themselves to myths. They were making big deals out of names and genealogies. They weren't handling the scriptures correctly. So in verses 8 through 11, Paul says, let's don't, don't throw the scriptures out, the Old Testament law out the window. Just because these chuckleheads are using it wrong, there's a right way to use it. And he says, understanding this, verse 9, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient. And then we walk through all those characteristics of who the law is laid down for. And then verse 10, uh, second part, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, sound doctrine, which is verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So let's follow Paul's line of thinking here. He's addressing the wrong use of the law. He says, don't follow these guys. They use the law wrong. Here's what you use the law rightly for. You use the law to contra- contradict and rebuke anything that is contrary to sound doctrine. Sound doctrine, which is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And now we're back to Paul's ministry. Paul's ministry. He, he never moves far from this point. He is predominantly fixed on the fact that God has called him into ministry to proclaim the gospel, to tell people about the gospel. He says, it's the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. And that brings us to our theme for tonight. Paul was called into the ministry. Verse 12, 
I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Appointing me to his service is another way of what he said in verse 11, that he had been entrusted with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. His grace, God's grace, enlisted Paul. It enlisted Paul. This word entrusted in verse 12, I'm sorry, excuse me, verse 11, the word entrusted is a Greek word. It means, according to one source, to have confidence in someone, to entrust a thing to his fidelity. It's the idea of you have something precious, but you can't hold on to it for whatever reason, and you give it to somebody who you know will take care of it. You give it to somebody who you know will take care of it. That's what the Lord did with Paul. Not that the Lord couldn't handle the gospel himself, but because he was gracious, he handed it to Paul and said, spread this message. Paul was entrusted with the gospel of God. This is what he says here. He judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. How do we see this? Let's just briefly remind ourselves, just very briefly, of Paul's conversion biography. Paul's conversion biography. He meets the Lord on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. He's struck blind, and then he prays. He's converted. He's born again. Ananias comes and baptizes the good Ananias, not the bad Ananias. The bad Ananias had already died by this point. The good Ananias comes, baptizes Paul, and then Paul begins to preach. Acts 9 verse 19. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Acts 9, verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Acts 9, verse 25 says that he had actually started having disciples under his teaching. He was that powerful in the scripture. Acts 9, verse 27, Barnabas took, this is after Paul leaves Damascus, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road Paul, Saul, had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. At the end of Acts 9, Paul goes from Damascus to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Caesarea, from Caesarea to Tarsus. What's interesting to see is that in all of these locations, wherever he's at, whether it's Jerusalem, Damascus, Caesarea, or Tarsus, just Luke comments, he's serving faithfully in the local church. I think sometimes we're tempted to believe that Paul got converted and boom, his apostolic ministry started right away. But there were 15 years of just serving in the local church. Some of that time it was upfront ministry like preaching. Other times, as we see, as we see in verse uh, 30, excuse me, of Acts 11, Paul and Barnabas were called to be messengers. They sent a love offering. Uh, verse 28 of Acts 11. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. This is Acts 11, verse 29. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Acts 12, 25. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where they completed their service. Literally, serving, bringing the money bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So you see, Saul did preach. He did do public ministry, but he also did service ministry, behind-the-scenes ministry. This was his life. This was Saul's life for 15 years. In fact, his name didn't change. His name didn't change until after his apostolic ministry began. He was just Saul. Saul, who had once been a rising star in Judaism, who gave it all up, 
Philippians 3, counted as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ and then served in the local church for a decade and a half. And then about around AD 47, we read in Acts 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And thus began the first missionary journey. The first missionary journey around AD 47. Paul reflects on this in 1 Timothy 1. Now fast forward to around AD 62, 64. So jump ahead another 15 years near the end of his life. He's looking back. He sees God's grace at his conversion. And he sees God's grace at his commission to apostolic missionary work. It was a gracious privilege given to Paul that he had the opportunity to tell the people the good news about the glory of the blessed God. And that glory of the blessed God dominates this whole section of 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul proceeds to articulate his wonder over the gospel of God, and it causes him in verse 17 to erupt in praise. Paul in this verse, though, verse 12, thanks Jesus who gave him strength to take on this monumental task, the task of testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. And Paul knows, as I hope you know, that this task is too difficult to do on your own. It's too hard to tell people about the gospel with a pure heart, in a way that honors Christ, in a way that magnifies Jesus and causes us to decrease, in a way that puts up with insults, with hardships, even persecution. It's too hard to do that in your own strength. If, if it's, I've heard it said before, I think it was Piper. If you are sufficient for your task, then your task is too small. In the Christian life, you're called to do things that are impossible on your own. And that's why we daily need God's grace. Paul says, Acts 20, verse 24. I said it earlier, but I want to say it again. It's one of my favorite verses. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 through 17. Paul describes his ministry in this way. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And then listen to this. This is 2 Corinthians 2.16. You can jot that down if you want. Who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for these things? This is a rhetorical exclamation. I can't do this on my own. You can't do this on your own. But Paul's confidence was not in his own ability. It was in Christ who strengthened him. That's what he says in Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, the immediate context of Philippians 4 is about being content in the middle of a prison sentence. But he says, I can do all things, pantes, all things. How? Through Christ's strength. Through Christ's strength. Even face suffering. 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. Paul talking about this thorn in his life. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, 
Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How are you strong, Paul? Back to 1 Timothy 1.12. I thank him who has given me strength. Strength to be content. Strength to face suffering. Strength to carry out one's ministry. Strength to run the race and to fight the fight. And guys, that's not just for Paul. That's for you. Doing your job with integrity. Loving your kids with patience. Serving sacrificially even when nobody recognizes or says good job. All of these and more. We could go on and on and on to describe things that we just can't do in our own strength. But we need the strength of Jesus Christ that comes when we daily turn to him and we say, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. And then we step out in obedience and faith and trusting that the grace of God rushes to meet us in that moment. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Why? Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now, Paul was not faithful before his conversion. Paul was not faithful before his conversion. He's going to tell us verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. So when was he judged faithful? I believe what he means here is he's referring to that period of a decade and a half where he served faithfully in various local churches. And and even then, Paul would say, even then Paul would say, well, it wasn't that I did a good job on my own for 15 years and then God gave me grace to do apostolic ministry. This is the principle of faithful with little will be faithful with much. This, This serves as an implicit challenge to you and me. How are we doing with what's set before us now? We may have our eyes set on a greater ministry or a greater opportunity. Man, one day, it'd be so neat if I could go on this missions trip. Man, one day, it'd be so great if I could do this ministry, if I could go to seminary or Bible school or whatever. And we think about the future ministry for Christ. I think implicit in here is a challenge. Would Jesus judge you faithful with what you've been given right now? You know, Paul was in Tarsus. He was in Caesarea. He was in Jerusalem. He was in Antioch for 15 years, various local churches. Just serving. Whatever he was called to do, just serving. You might, you might think that you have, you know, I, this is my world that I live in, you know, like with little kids, right? And, and talking with my wife and just trying to encourage her, sometimes she thinks like, man, am I, am I doing anything for the Lord? Sometimes we can get so myopic and sucked into our own, you know, little world. Well, yes, you are. You are. I mean, if you, if you are scrubbing floors or if you are cleaning teeth or if you are building buildings or whatever you're doing, checking ledgers and accounts, whatever you're doing, if you think back to what Bart's been talking about with our work series in Colossians. If you do your work heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men, you're serving Christ. Are you being faithful with it? If you're being faithful with it, Jesus tells us faithful with little, faithful with much. Faithful with little, faithful with much. Paul says, I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful. Those 15 years serving local churches, he was judged faithful. And then what? He pointed me to his service. He pointed me to his service. I think that's a reference specific. No, I believe that's a reference specifically to Paul's apostolic ministry. Not any one of us is going to be an apostle. Apostolic age is ended. But we all have the privilege of telling people about the gospel. Jesus appointed me to his service. And here's where the grace of God really shines. Verse 13. Look at verse 13. Though formerly, I was a blasphemer, mocking God, insulting God, saying horrible things about God. How was Paul a blasphemer? How was he a blasphemer? He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, 
I mean, he stoned people that he thought were blasphemers. He, he thought Stephen was a blasphemer. And he said to everybody, he said, hey, guys, I'll hold your coats. You go kill him. He was a blasphemer because he was denying the deity of Jesus Christ. Paul thought that just Yahweh meant just God the Father in his thinking before his conversion. He thought he was a worshiper of the God of the Bible. But he had an incomplete understanding of who Christ was. He was a blasphemer because he was, before his conversion, mocking and insulting and slandering the deity of Jesus Christ. Not only was he a blasphemer, second, he was a persecutor. Next part of verse 13. We know how he was a persecutor. He was handing over Christians to be killed. He was a persecutor and he was an insolent opponent. Just so hard-hearted in his denial of the gospel. In his denial of the gospel. Look at Acts 8, 1 through 3. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation for him. Acts 8, verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Then a chapter ahead, Acts 9, 1 through 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Just stop right real, real quick. Let that sink in. This is Paul. This is Paul who would give his life for Christ. This is Paul who says, I consider my life not worth anything to myself, but only that I may testify to the grace of God. But think about who he was before his conversion. He's ravaging the church. He's banging down doors, going house to house, grabbing people, ripping families apart, throwing people into prison, not caring if they lived or died. In fact, wanting them to die. That's what we see in Acts 9. He's breathing threats and murder. It's like exuding out of his mouth. He wants these Christians dead. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul wants, just think about Paul's fervency, Saul's fervency to hate the people of God before his conversion. Damascus is outside Israel. Damascus is beyond the northern border of Israel. He wants to go out of the country with letters from the chief priests to go arrest other Jews and have the synagogues in other cities sign off on it so that he can bring them to Jerusalem so that they can be killed. I mean, that's how zealous he is. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. And he was an insolent opponent. You would think if there's nobody getting saved, it's that guy. It's that guy. I mean, now we can understand why he says he's the foremost of sinners. He hated Christ. He hated the gospel. He couldn't get at Christ himself. So what did he do? He sought to inflict his wrath upon Christ's followers. But then look at the second half of verse 13. And just, just think on this. But I received mercy. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Explaining this verse, MacArthur says this. How could so vile a sinner as Paul receive mercy? Because he writes, I acted ignorantly in unbelief. He was no hardened apostate, rejecting the full light of God's revelation. He was not like the Pharisees who understood Christ's teaching and power, but rejected him. 
Nor was he to be classed with those who, quoting Hebrews 6, who once had been enlightened and had tasted of the heavenly gift, who had made partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, have fallen away. MacArthur continues, Paul did not understand the ramifications of his actions. Sinning willfully after having received the truth can result in permanent judgment. Hebrews 10, 26 through 27. Paul was responsible for his sin. He was the foremost of sinners. But he received forgiveness because he did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. That's Acts 26, 19. When faced with the truth, Paul believed it. MacArthur concludes, The grace of God is powerful enough to redeem the worst sinner who is willing to repent. The grace of God is powerful enough to redeem the worst sinner who is willing to repent. When we look at people like the Pharisees who committed the unpardonable sin, they knew who Jesus was. They knew that he was the Messiah. Even Nicodemus, who I believe got saved, but Nicodemus, before he was saved, even affirmed on behalf of the other Pharisees, we know that you're a teacher sent from God because nobody could do these things unless God was with him. So they knew somehow that Jesus was sent from God in some special way. They heard Jesus' teaching. They had really had no choice but to affirm him as the Messiah. And yet they continued to plug their spiritual ears and shut tight their spiritual eyes and reject Jesus as the Messiah until their hearts were hardened in permanent rejection. That's the same thing for people described in Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 12. They, they know, they know deep down that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords and they need to bow the knee to him. And they say, I don't want it. Get that out of my face. I don't want it. I want to be the Lord of my life. I want to be the King of Kings. Paul, when confronted with Jesus on the Damascus road, what does he say? Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? He calls him Lord and he meant it. Paul received mercy because even though he had been so hate-filled and such a persecutor and such an opponent, He did act ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord, verse 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This grace called Paul into fellowship with God. It called Paul out of darkness into light. This word overflowed is such a great word. It is hyperpleonazo. It comes from hyper. If you have a hyperactive kid, which in which kid isn't hyperactive, right? And then pleonazo, plenty, like hyper plenty, so much. It overflows, it says here in the ESV. It's like a cup that's just spilling over and it won't stop. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. God's grace brought in Paul's life faith in Jesus and love for God and love like God. It's agape love. Only true Christians who've been changed by God's grace can love God and love others. That's what happened in Paul's life. The grace of our Lord, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. What did it bring with it? with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. God's grace enlists unworthy soldiers to serve, both behind the scenes in local churches and then at various times in more public ministry. That's what happened to Paul. He was called into Christianity, into the local church. He served faithfully. And then specifically in his life, at a unique time, he was called to apostolic ministry. Well, God's grace not only enlists unworthy soldiers, It also encourages unworthy soldiers. God's grace encourages unworthy soldiers to hope. It enlists us to serve. 
It encourages us to hope. Let's look at verses 15 and 16. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. There are times where you may feel that you have failed so terribly in your discharge of the Christian life that you wonder, does God have any place for me? Am I going to be put on the shelf? And it is possible to fail in a small way. Mm, No, sorry. Here, this is what happens when I go off my notes. It's not great. It is possible to fail in the Christian life, but never finally. For the Christian, failure is never final. It is possible to be disqualified. It is possible to make a mess of things. It is possible to stumble. John Mark is an example of this. If you know about the testimony of Mark, there was a point after the first missionary journey where Mark abandoned Paul and Barnabas. It was just too hard. So he went back home to Jerusalem. He didn't abandon the faith, but he chickened out in the work. It was to the point that Paul didn't want to take Mark on future journeys. He said, nope, I don't want that guy. Give me Timothy instead. Barnabas, who was probably more gracious in his personal interaction with people, the son of encouragement, Barnabas took Mark. Mark's an example of failure, but failure not being final. Because by the time we get to 2 Timothy, what does Paul say? He says, bring Mark because he's useful for me. Failure for the Christian is never fully final. But we do fail and we do stumble. We do make mistakes. We can be um, We can be errant in our discharge of our duties at times, but there's hope. If you're truly born again, there's always hope. There's unlimited second chances for the Christian. Unlimited second chances for the Christian. Verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am for. I am the foremost. By the way, I I love the way Paul writes verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is the same Paul who writes in Ephesians 1 that God has chosen those who will believe before the foundation of the world. The doctrine of election is absolutely true. But also the gospel message goes to sinners. There's there's no in this verse, in this verse, there's no qualifying phrase here. I love the way the gospel is stated here. The gospel call goes to all people everywhere. And I think that should motivate you and me as we seek to interact with people. We don't know who's elect and who's not. We don't. So we preach the gospel to everybody, holding out hope that as long as a person is breathing, there's still an opportunity for them to turn and to respond to the call of the gospel. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's a blanket term for those who are in opposition to God. There's no qualifying adjective there. He came to save sinners. I've heard Spurgeon say this. I've actually read this in a lot of the Puritans. How do you know if the gospel's for you? Are you a sinner? If so, you qualify. If so, you qualify. Uh, the hymn, uh, oh man, I will arise and go to Jesus. Uh, Nor a fitless fondly dream, all the fitness that he requires is to know your need of him. All the fitness that he requires is to know your need of him. Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? To save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Why does Paul hone in on that phrase that he's the foremost? Well, verse 16. 
but I receive mercy for this reason. Why? That in me as the foremost, as the chief of sinners, the one who's at the top of the list, you want to find somebody in church history, in early church history, that hated Christ at one point? You want to find anybody who hated Christ more rapidly than Paul did. You wouldn't find anybody who was so zealous in his persecution of faithful Christians than Saul before his conversion. He literally was the foremost, breathing out threats and murder. As the foremost, Jesus Christ might display, verse 16, his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. If that's you, if you are somebody who by God's grace has believed in Christ for eternal life, and you might be tempted to think, man, ministry's hard. The Christian life is hard. It's hard to be a godly testimony at work. It's hard to be a godly parent to my kids. It's hard, and I mess up. I don't always do it right. I stumble. I miss opportunities to reflect the character of God and to preach his word to those around me. Don't give up. God's grace reached Paul. God's grace reaches you. There are a lot of things that work in Paul's conversion. Jesus called Paul into the ministry so that the gospel would go to the Gentiles. But there's another reason for Paul's conversion. Verse 16, an example. I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who believe in him for eternal life. An example, those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says it's a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He uses the same phrase, trustworthy statement, four other times in the pastoral epistles. Uh, One commentator says this, basically, this trustworthy statement is a self-evident, obvious statement. It's something so patently clear that everyone acknowledges it. Basically, it's a statement that you can take it to the bank. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. He saved Paul. His grace extended to Paul. And that's the same grace that is there for you. The same grace that is there for you. It's the grace described in verse 16 as perfect patience. Perfect patience. Patience. I don't think I've ever had a day of perfect patience. I'm tempted to be impatient and frustrated. Christ has perfect patience for his sheep, for his soldiers. God's grace encourages unworthy soldiers to hope. It enlists us to serve. It encourages us to hope. We have a patient commanding officer. The natural result then should be praise. We see that verse 17 in our next point. God's grace enthuses unworthy soldiers to praise. It invigorates us. If you can look at the grace of God and not be moved in some way, I'm not saying you need to like dissolve into a pool of tears, although that may be at certain times the natural response. But if there's no movement in your heart at all, then there's something wrong. There needs to be some type of emotive response that starts in the depth of your soul when you see God's grace at work in the life of a scoundrel like Paul. And then you realize that it is there for you as well. You would say something like verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. To him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul overflows with gratitude to God in this verse. He calls him the king of the ages. The one who's ruled throughout all of time and history. 
then in that same vein, he is immortal. He has always been eternally existing into the future, but also eternally existing into the past. God's immortality, both running both ways towards the past and towards the future, is described in Psalm 90 verses 1 through 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He's the king of the ages, the one who has reigned throughout all time in history. He's immortal, the one who can never die, who has always existed. And then he uses an interesting adjective here, verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Why does Paul describe God as invisible? That's because it's part of God's character. God is spirit. He doesn't have a body that we can look upon. Paul will come back to this point in chapter 6. We're going to get to this next semester when we get to chapter 6. Another doxological eruption in verses 15 through 16 of chapter 6. Paul says, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. First Timothy 6, 15 through 16. God is so holy. We, can, we as sinners cannot look upon him. This is particularly referring to the first member of the Trinity, God the Father. And we'll explain that in just a minute. John 1, 18, where John the Apostle is proving the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says this in John 1, 18. You might know this verse by memory. He says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And if you're not familiar with Trinitarian theology, that might be a little trippy verse for you. But it's true. John's saying no one has ever seen God the Father. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's Christ. He, Christ, has made him, the Father, known. This helps us understand passages like Exodus 24, 9 through 10. You may not remember this one, maybe not too familiar with it, but it's fascinating. Exodus 24, 9 through 10. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. Now that in and of itself is an interesting note. Nadab and Abihu got to see God. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. They saw the God of Israel. Exodus 24, verse 10. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stones, like the very heaven for clearness. So who did Nadab and Abihu see? And who did Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders see? They saw Christ. They saw the second member of the Trinity. Every time people see God in the Old Testament, Isaiah in the temple, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Isaiah chapter 6. They're seeing pre-incarnate Christ. Those are Christophanies. That's why John says in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. And that's why Paul, going back to our passage for tonight, that's why Paul says in verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, talking about God the Father, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul here ascribes exclusively to God, honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. uh, Paul says that this is the only God. The exclusivity of the one true God is a theme throughout Paul's ministry. 
1 Corinthians 8, 5 through 6, Paul says this, For although there are many, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, lowercase g, and many lords, lowercase l, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul affirmed that the only God is the three in one. God the Father, God the Son, and then we see from 2 Corinthians 3.18, God the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul refers to the Spirit as the Lord. In Paul's theology, there is one God, three persons, one God, and he deserves, verse 17b, honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Honor, putting him in his proper place. Glory, ascribing him to the, the weighty majesty that he deserves. Put God in his proper place in your heart, in your life, in your conduct, in your actions. Give him the weighty majesty that he rightfully deserves now and forever. Amen. Why? Because of his grace. It all goes back to God's grace. The one only Trinitarian God, the king of the ages, deserves all the honor and all the glory forever and ever. Amen. And if you are a soldier in the fight, called by God, out of darkness, into light, equipped for ministry, enlisted into the ministry, then when you understand just how gracious God is and just how much of a sinner you are, because you too at one time were an insolent opponent, even if you don't realize it, you receive God's mercy, then the natural response, verse 17, is to step back and erupt in praise. God's grace enlists unworthy soldiers to serve, God's grace encourages unworthy soldiers to hope. God's grace enthuses unworthy unworthy soldiers to praise. Fourthly and finally, God's grace entrusts unworthy soldiers to persevere. God's grace entrusts unworthy soldiers to persevere. Verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Timothy is equipped to ministry in four ways. Four ways. I don't have these on the slides, uh, but Timothy is equipped. God's grace, I'm sorry, I said in trust. Excuse me, it's God's grace equips unworthy soldiers to persevere. What is Timothy equipped with and equipped by? First and foremost, Timothy is equipped by Paul's formal charge that he is entrusting to him. Verse 18 has the flavor of a baton passing. It has the flavor of this was given to me and now I give it to you. This charge, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. Now, we'll see this later in 2 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul says, this is near the end of Paul's life. He knows he's going to die soon. In 1 Timothy, Paul's not on death's door. In 2 Timothy, he is. In 2 Timothy 2, he says to Timothy, the things that you have heard from me, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. When we get to 2 Timothy next semester, we'll talk about that. But there's this idea of faithful ministry seeks to pass on. It, it looks to, to pass on to the next generation what you've learned. And here... Paul does that in a sense, though it's not as sober as 2 Timothy 2. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. 
What's the charge? John Kitchen points out this is a reference to verse 3 through 5. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Why? So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Go to Ephesus and straighten things out. Timothy, I am entrusting this command to you. It's the command to gospel ministry. Now, you may not be ever entrusted with sorting out a messed up local church. That's okay. But there are ways that the gospel should impact your life around you. You're called to be a witness, to be a light, to be salt and light to people around you. Let your light shine before men. They may see good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Paul says in Philippians 2 that we're to be uh, blameless and innocent in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, shining as lights in the darkness. You are entrusted to do that. You are charged to do that. Just as Paul and Timothy were called to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, so you too have been given this charge. Now, again, you may never have to straighten out a local church. And thankfully, our church is pretty healthy right now, so I'm thankful for that. But there are certain ways that you can carry out the call of the gospel in your life. You've been entrusted with it, just as Timothy was. He's equipped by Paul's formal charge. Next, he's equipped by the God-given prophecies that were previously made about him. This is particular to Timothy. Uh, At this time in church history, prophecies and prophetic gifts were still in uh, action. Uh, We do believe and teach at this church that by the end of the apostolic age, prophetic utterances had ceased. By the end of the apostolic age and the close of the canon with the writing of the book of Revelation, uh, there's especially a a charge at the end of the book of Revelation to not add to this book. It seems to carry with it the idea that the canon is closed. But before that time, people in the local church, including uh, men like Agabus, functioned as prophets. And in verse 18 here, we see a reference to prophecies that have been made about Timothy. We don't have a record of these prophecies in the book of Acts, so we don't know exactly what was said about him. But we can take from this verse that at some point there was a very special event in Timothy's life where one or more people made prophetic utterances from God about him. Kitchen writes this. He says, we're not told precisely when or in what context these prophecies were made, but it may have well been at the time of Timothy's consecration to ministry. Quoting from 1 Timothy 4, Kitchen says, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance, with the laying on of hands by the presbytery, the elders. The content of these prophecies may have been given some indication of the kind of ministry in which God would use Timothy, or the sort of spiritual gifts that God had invested in him. From this, Kitchen writes, we are reminded just how powerful and long-lasting words spoken at the Spirit's leading can be. They may carry the power to keep and encourage in battles on fields of service not yet even imagined. We do well to remember our call to ministry and the affirmation of God's people as they affirmed God's call upon us. How does this apply to us? How do we take verse 18, which was particular in Timothy's life, there were prophecies made about him, and how does that help you and me as we seek to fight the good fight? Well, you may not have had a prophet come up to you, lay hands on you, and say, this is going to happen in your life, and that's going to happen in your life. If you have, let's talk, because I'm pretty sure that was not true. But you have been told, Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work, and he will be faithful to complete it. You have been told in Romans 8 that the sufferings that we now experience in this present life are not worthy to be compared with what God has in store for us. You've, You've been told in 1 John 5 that we ask anything according to the Father's will, he hears us. We've been told in James 1, 5, that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach. 
We've been told in Hebrews 13 that he is with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. You do have prophetic utterances made about you. They're all in this book. Anything that's true of a New Testament Christian is true of you. Paul reminds Timothy of these specific prophecies that have been made in his life. And those encouraged him in the fight. And you have access to that same type of prophetic word. Not that a human person walked up and audibly told you, but that you see in the pages of Scripture. God will never leave you nor forsake you. He's with you to the end of the age. He'll equip you to do what he calls you to do. He'll give you strength and grace when you ask for it. Uh, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Uh, Go to the throne of grace that we might find mercy and grace to help in time of need. All of that is for you, Christian. All of that is for you. Timothy's equipped by the formal charge, by the God-given prophecies, and then by battlefield instructions. Second part of verse 18. He's called to wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. What does it mean to wage the good warfare? To take a stand for Christ. To take a stand against lies. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10.5. We tear down every lofty argument raised against the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Uh, Ephesians 6. Put on the full armor of God. You may be able to stand in the evil day. Wage the good warfare. Holding faith. This refers to what you believe in terms of both doctrine and trust. Holding faith in, in Pauline theology has this twofold emphasis. It's both doctrine, like affirming certain theological truths that you must affirm to be a Christian, but also faith is this idea of personally entrusting your soul to Christ. Holding faith. Wage a good warfare. How? Holding faith, your doctrine, and trusting yourself to Christ, and holding to a good conscience. Meaning that you are, by the best of your ability, in the power of the Holy Spirit, that's a key. You're keeping your conduct in step with the gospel. There's nothing incongruous in your life. There's nothing in your life that would deny your public profession. If you are sharing the gospel with your coworkers at work, but privately at home you're looking at pornography, you're not holding a good conscience. You are undermining your ministry. If you are talking to people about God's love and that at home you are rude and unkind to your spouse or your kids, you are not holding a good conscience. God's grace should impact every area of your life as you seek to fight the good fight. So Timothy was equipped by the formal charge, the passing of the baton. He was equipped by the prophetic utterances made about him. He's equipped by these battlefield instructions to wage the good warfare, fight the good fight, take a stand for Christ. How? By holding faith and holding a good conscience, keeping your conduct in step with the gospel. Fourthly, how is Timothy equipped to persevere? By a negative warning. By a sobering example that ends this section. Second part of verse 19. By rejecting this. Reject, what's the this? It's this, this overarching idea of fighting the good fight by holding the faith and a, clean, and a good conscience. By rejecting that way of living, a couple guys have really messed up their lives. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. In this negative example of Hymenaeus and Alexander, and as the text indicates, others, because it says some, including these two guys, but probably it included more than just these two guys, 
In this negative example, Timothy is warned. Don't lose that good conscience. Don't let go of the faith, both doctrine and trust. Doctrine and trust. Don't let go of these. Why? What will happen? What will happen is that you'll make shipwreck of your faith. What does it mean to make shipwreck of your faith? Well, if somebody is a genuine Christian, if somebody is genuinely born again, to make shipwreck of your faith means to deny Christ in your conduct, even though you don't deny him in your heart. It means to cast dishonor on Christ. It means to bring shame on the name of Christ. It means to uh, show to a watching world that what you had publicly claimed, you didn't fully practice in private. Making shipwreck of your faith, though, if you're not a Christian, could mean something as dangerous as apostasy. It could mean something as dangerous as, as what we see in the book of Hebrews, where there were these people who had this external allegiance to Christ. At a time, they would have said, yeah, I'm a Christian. And they would go to church and they would experience God's grace through the kindness shown to them by other Christians. But then ultimately, they would just persist in sin and persist in sin and persist in sin until it leads to an incredibly hardened heart that wants nothing to do with Christ. When suffering would come knocking at the door, people like that in Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 12, they would seek to save their own skin, even if it meant denying Jesus Christ. We don't know which category necessarily Hymenaeus and Alexander fall into. Were these Christians who had completely ruined their testimony? Were they non-believers who were in danger of apostasy? I'm inclined to believe that Hymenaeus and Alexander were non-Christians, just based on their conduct. They were non-Christians, but there was still hope for them. And that's encouraging. Why do we say that there's hope? Paul says, whom I have handed over to Satan, and it's not game over. It's not first, if there was a period there, that would be so discouraging. Whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. You know, this same terminology is used in an interesting case of church discipline from 1 Corinthians 5. There was a man in the Corinthian church who was engaged in uh, sleeping with his stepmother. It was gross incest. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. It's actually reported that there is sexual morality among you. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man over to Satan. Same terminology as in 1 Timothy 1. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It is hopeful from this verse, verse 20, that Hymenaeus and Alexander and others who've made shipwreck of their faith, even though they may be presently lost in their sins, that there's hopeful that the gospel would take root in their heart. It's hopeful that these men may, quote, learn not to blaspheme. Blaspheme, that's the same thing Paul himself had been guilty of, is it not? The same thing Paul said before he was converted. He was a blasphemer, verse 13. Paul's hopeful that even through this painful act of handing these men over to Satan, which means for a time they're under Satan's tormenting influence, that in the midst of that suffering, they would cry out to God in repentance, that they would learn not to blaspheme, and that the same grace of God that transformed Paul would transform these men. And that gives us hope as we interact with people. As long as there's life, there's hope. As long as there's breath, there's hope. Never stop, never stop sharing the gospel with somebody. Never stop sharing the gospel with somebody. 
Why? Verse five, go back to verse five. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Timothy was to go to Ephesus, correct these false teachers, and prayerfully they would change. That as the word of God is at work in their hearts, they would be transformed. And from that changed heart would be love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Unworthy soldiers like you and me labor so that other unworthy sinners can partake of the same transformative grace that saved us in the first place. I pray that you're impacted by that grace tonight and encouraged to press on and persevere. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time in 1 Timothy 1. I pray, Lord, that we would press on uh, joyfully because of your grace on our life. And if there's anybody here tonight, Lord, that knows a lot about your grace but has not personally responded, Lord, would you please work on their heart today so that they would no longer be an insolent opponent but would bow the knee truly to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.